For those of us who will stay in the worship service, I invite you to join me in Matthew 24. Matthew chapter 24. I wanted to read this morning from this passage of scripture and spend a little bit of time uh, just praying for the uh, folks over in Ukraine and the events that are going on over there. And uh, it's just a reminder of the things that we're seeing going on around us. It seems like it's, it's, um, there's an intensification of problems, uh, whether it be wars whether it be pandemics, uh, whatever might be the case, it just seems like we're, we're going from one, um, one crisis to another. And this passage of Scripture kind of deals with that as it talks about how the last days are going to be like that. They're going to be an intensification. He refers to crisis in the last days as being like a woman who was getting ready to give birth. And uh, all of you women out here who have given birth know that there's an intensification of things towards the end, and uh, the frequency of them is intensifying, and the, uh, the pain that's involved is intensifying, and there's a lot of things that are happening. And so uh, I just wanted to share this passage of Scripture with you in Matthew 24. We'll begin reading in verse 6. The Bible says, "...and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars." See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. You will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the ones who endure to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. There are three things that we... Uh, sent out, Michael uh, Eastman, Pastor Michael, sent out an email this week encouraging the church to pray for the folks over in Ukraine. And there are three primary areas of, um, that he focused on in regards to his prayer. And I'm just going to read those to you. And I want to encourage you throughout these next few weeks that we be in prayer for the people over in Ukraine and what they're facing right now. Um, this is a real, we, we watch it on TV and we hear what they're saying and we see what they decide to show to us, but these, these are real events that are taking place in our world today and they're real people that are facing these challenges and that are uh, standing firm in the face of great conflict. And I have, a, I have three, uh, nie- uh, two nieces and one nephew that were adopted out of Ukraine probably in the last 10 years and uh, they will... Um, ask you to pray in this same way. They have family members over there, loved ones, parents, brothers and sisters, and uh, this is a real event, and these are real things happening, and I think we, it, it becomes a little bit more real for us as we see it in our own streets on occasion, and we're able to say, wow, that is something that could really happen here, and um, 
So they're really going through it over there, and we don't know what the future holds, but it's interesting all of the things that have happened. It's interesting how they've stood firm, and I just pray that, I just, I mean, I think of Gideon and his 300 men against over 120,000, and I think God is, God is bigger, and, and the, the newscasters are saying constantly that it's just a matter of time before Russia wins, and it's possible if that's true, but it's possible that it's not true too, and we serve a big God, and he's able to give big victories. And so these three areas, I wanted to encourage you to pray, and then we'll pray together for these three areas. Pray, pray first and foremost for believers in Ukraine. Pray that they will encourage one another, that they will be faithful uh, and fearless, that they will hold fast to their hope in Christ, stimulating one another to love and good deeds. Pray for the chaplains in the Ukrainian military and their duty as soldiers and as men of God as they seek to minister in unbelievably difficult circumstances. Pray for the unbelievers that are there. Pray that God would use this tragic, tragic moment to draw people to himself and magnify his grace through their salvation. No matter what happens in Ukraine when it comes to the physical um, aspects of this war, if souls are saved, that's really what matters. Because where they, where they go after they leave this life is what's significant. And um, so we want to pray that God would be gracious and bring salvation to their to souls. And the end of it is, let us pray that Christ would save millions of sinners during this time. And the last thing to pray for is peace. Pray that God would bring peace, uh, that this war, that the war would end, and that God would be merciful to the Ukrainian people in restoring peace to their homeland. And we need to pray that God works out, another one you could pray is that God works out his purposes. I don't know what Ukraine was like before this. And we, um, we're, we're just sympathetic towards them because of the moment that they're facing. But there's, there's sanctification that can be taking place in the life of Ukrainians as well in this process and humbling and um, perhaps pointing them to a power that is greater than their own. It's, it's interesting when we're, made to face things that are bigger than we are, how, how we can then kneel before one who is bigger than we are. And so I just want to encourage you to pray for these in these three categories for the Ukrainian people and maybe others as well that come to your mind as you pray for them. But each day throughout this week, I would want to just challenge you to be in prayer for those folks. The Lord says to suffer as if you were with them, to, to be as if you were in prison with them. And... Um, it's hard to do, but that's the mercy that God gives us. So join me, if you would, in prayer as we will pray for the Ukrainian people, also for our own church. Father, we do thank you. We count it an honor to be here in your house today to, um, to have the freedom and the protection that we are experiencing this moment and to think of our brothers and sisters who are over in a country where right now they're under great attack. Uh, their lives are uh, on the line every moment. And it could be at any moment that they could pass into eternity. We pray that as they are still living, that you would give them the strength and the power and the perseverance to stand firm for you, that they would be lights in a very dark situation, that their brothers and their Ukrainian brothers and sisters and families would be able to hear the gospel in this moment and that you would give the ministers of the gospel a boldness that they've never had before, knowing that this um, is a serious moment.
We pray for the unbelievers that are there, that you would open their eyes and their minds to hearing your truth, and that you would open their hearts, you would humble them and bring them to a place where they'll receive your truth, and that there would be a a massive revival that takes place in Ukrainian land today and throughout the following weeks as they face a situation that's bigger than they are, and perhaps they will serve a God that's bigger than their situation We pray as well, Lord, that you'd bring peace to this land, that you would restore and, Lord, even make better what was was there and restore their liberties and their freedoms, if you would. And um, we pray as well that you would do a work in the lives of the Russian people that are watching this event take place. And as is reported on the news, many of them are standing opposed to it. And we pray, Lord, that you would bring a revival to the Russian people as well and salvation to them and change their hearts and their minds. And Lord, we pray that you would uh, change Putin's mind. Uh, You're powerful enough to turn him from one direction to the other and, and, and just the thought of your mind. And so we pray that you would do that and that, um, because of your power and display of your grace, many would come to know you. We pray for our own country. Lord, help us to be on a path that is um, a path of, of, of righteousness and a path of peace, a path of grace and kindness and forgiveness. And Help us to, to um, be re-humbled, Lord, and to know that you are our only hope and Christ Jesus is our only Savior. Pray that you'd bring revival to our country as well. Please be with us this morning as we open your word. May you speak to our hearts and challenge us to follow you um, wherever you call us to go. We'll give you the thanks and the praise for it in Christ's name. Amen. Jonah, if you want to join me back in the book of Jonah, we're on a a journey through the book this next several months. And... um, pray that it's been a blessing to you already as we've walked through some different aspects of the book of Jonah, of Jonah's life. We are focused in on two main characters in Jonah. One is God and his sovereign mercy. The other is Jonah and his stubbornness. We're mindful of the fact that Jonah represents all of us. And we're all Jonah's at some point in time in our lives where God gives us some direction from his word and we run from it. And the reality is, if we were honest with ourselves, we probably face this at least once a week, maybe once a day, that God gives us some direction, gives us some instruction, uh, gives us some um, command and we run away from it. We flee from that command or we disobey that command. So in that sense, Jonah represents us all. And we can see ourselves in his story and learn some, some principles on how we ought to respond to God's direction in our lives. We also note that the book of Jonah is really about evangelism. It's about Jonah being called to evangelize a an evil people, a Gentile people, a forsaken people, a, a, a uh, enemy of the Jewish people. 
And so the main theme, one of the main themes is evangelism. But in addition to that, really, the theme of Jonah is when God speaks to you through his word, that how do you respond to that? Or how ought you to respond to that? It's easy to get lost in just the evangelistic part of the story, but there is more to it because God speaks to us in many ways each and every day of our lives, giving us instruction on how we ought to live our lives, how we ought to function, how we can most consistently obey him and his word. When we look at the narrative of Jonah, we're reminded of two principles that I wanted to address before getting into this morning's message. Number one is, I want you to remember this, these narratives are not written so that you can shake your finger at Jonah, okay? The narratives of Scripture are not written so that you can see the failures of someone else and and shake your finger at them and say, shame on you for failing, The narratives in Scripture, the stories, if you will, in the Word of God are given to us so that we can look at ourselves, so that we can see what might be our natural tendency to respond to a situation and then avoid that natural tendency and follow and obey Christ. So these narratives and the story of Jonah and many others, the parables in the New Testament, are not meant for us to see other people's failures. They're meant for us to see our failures. They're meant for us to see our tendencies. They're meant for us to see our weaknesses. In Matthew 28, verse, or 21, verses 28 through 32, there's a parable of two sons. You'll remember the parable, the father is a farmer, a rancher or a farmer of sorts, and he tells his one son to go out into the field and, and do the work, do the harvesting work, and the son says, I, I, I will go. He's, he's very submissive with his words, and when it comes time to actually going out and doing the work, he doesn't go out and do the work. The other son is very rebellious. He tells his father, I'm not going to go. Then he ultimately ends up going out into the field and accomplishing the task that was before him. The one son who was rebellious in the beginning ultimately repents and obeys, and the Lord the Lord presents him as in a positive light. The other son who had all the right words to say and presented himself himself in a positive light and perhaps even pointed his finger at the other brother ends up going out or or the one brother who says he's going to go out doesn't go out. The other brother who says he's not going to go out has a rebellious attitude, goes out and obeys. And the Lord says that the brother who was rebellious but yet went out was the one who was was presented as as being saved. The prodigal son is another wonderful story where we see one brother who is self-righteous, who has has felt like he has done all of the things required of him, pointing his finger at his other brother, who is a failure. And the Bible says that the one brother who failed and went away into the far country but yet repented and came back was received by the father. The other brother who who stayed there the whole time and pointed his finger at his other brother The Bible says he was rejected by the Father. He was invited by the Father to come in and join the celebration, but ultimately he was rejected by the Father because he refused to join the celebration. It is so easy for us, if I can warn you with anything in in caution this morning as we go into this, it is so easy for us to point our fingers at other people's problems. Matter of fact, one of the great ways that we avoid focusing and dealing with our own problems is by pointing pointing out that other people have bigger problems than we do. 
Some people are very dangerous in this way that they're constantly pointing out other people's failures and problems because they themselves have many hidden failures and problems and don't want to deal with them. So these stories and our and our and the things that we see in our life and the people we see around us, which are which are narratives that are unfolding, they're not meant for us to point our finger at them. They're meant for us to do some inspection of us. Many of us will wag our fingers at Jonah this morning and throughout this study while we sit at home and do nothing. It's true, isn't it? Jonah was called to go to a whole foreign place where the people had just destroyed his people's uh, capital city. We're called to go to our neighbors and we're like, yeah, you're right. This is not about wagging our finger at Jonah. This is about doing some introspection. Where are we at in regards to when God calls us to do something? You know, go in, as you're going into the world, make sure that you're making disciples of people. That's not a, that's, that's not a, uh, he's, not, he's, not, he's not giving us a, a um, oh, I can't even think of the word that I want to say, but he, he, he is giving us a command there. He's not making a recommendation Jonah was rebellious, yet he repented and obeyed, and God blessed him. The second thing I want you to remember in regards to just kind of a, pre- a preview to our, this morning's message is how we, respond, how we respond to God's word often is revealing of where we're at spiritually. It's very revealing of our spiritual condition. Matthew 13, the, the parable of the four different soils, and the, the word of God falls on each one of those soils, and each one of them responds in a different way. And as we read that parable, we find ourselves understanding that how I respond to the instruction of God shows me where I'm at spiritually. It's, it's funny how we look at other people's fruits, right? And we say, well, I can tell where they're at spiritually. We got them pinpointed down. But we don't, we don't look at our own selves with that same, with that same um, discernment. We don't look at that ourselves with that same uh, judgment. And so the way that we, we respond to the word is very revealing of where you're at in regards to your spiritual condition. There are lots of people who even hear the word and say, yes, I believe that and I accept it. And they're lost as can be. There's too many passages of Scripture that tell us that because they don't obey the Word. It's not about agreeing with your mouth. It's about agreeing in your heart. It's about taking what God's Word says and living it. That truly is is the proper, the fruitful response to the Word of God falling into your heart. The Bible tells us the Lord told the told the Jewish people in the, in the time where they were rejecting him in the Gospels, they were rejecting him. And he says this to them, you worship me with your, you guys finish it for me, you worship me with your, with your mouth, but your heart is, is far from me. That's a condemnation of those people. That's a danger for modern day Christians, modern day professing Christians. It's a danger of being a professing Christian, but not a possessing Christian. We profess something with our mouth, but don't possess it with our hearts. And we have to be very, very careful of that. 
Each day we face instructions from God in his word, and we all decide how to respond. For Jonah and much of humanity, we respond by running, or we respond by rebelling and then running because we don't want to face God in the midst of our rebellion. I think that's more of a way of describing Jonah. He rebelled and then he ran because he didn't want to, he didn't want to see God in his rebellion. His running was just simply a product of not wanting to be in the presence of God. And his not wanting to be in the presence of God was simply a product of his rebellion. And when we live in sin, we don't want to be in the presence of God. So that brings us to our text. I'm going to read the first six verses. I'm going to review a little bit. I'm going to give you two, two additional thoughts this morning um, in regards to Jonah's running from God. And, uh, and then we'll, we'll conclude the service. The Bible says in verse 1, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil is come up against me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. It's pretty obvious where Jonah is going, isn't it? But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid and each cried out to his God and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. And we can just kind of take a moment and meditate and think about the picture that we're experiencing here. A storm is beating against the ship the mariners, all of the mariners were lost men. They were crying out to their own gods, unbelievers, and here's the one Christian guy on the entire boat, right? The one guy that could actually have some impact on the situation. And what's he doing? He's sleeping, right? Shame on Jonah, right? I mean, just imagine it. Would you guys, if you were in that boat and you were in the top side, and you were fighting all the waves, and you were casting things off the boat, probably very valuable cargo. This was a cargo ship. This was a serious type of a, to, to go to Tarshish, back and forth from Joppa to Tarshish was a main cargo uh, uh, route. I mean, they, were, they were unloading cargo that was probably super valuable to them. And to find the Christian guy, the guy who actually has a comp- can have a conversation with the God who created the wind. He says that. I worship the God who created the winds and the storms and created all this stuff. And to find him in the bottom of the boat sleeping. It's good to think about those things, isn't it? When we look about Ukraine, when we look at what's going on in our own country, what are we doing? What are we doing about it? Are we doing anything? Here's what he says to him. He says, so the captain came and said to him, what do you mean, you sleeper? It's a, it's a powerful statement for a lost person to call a believer a sleeper. What are you doing? What are you doing? He says, arise, call out to your God, 
perhaps he will give a thought to us that we may not perish. Let me give you some thoughts this morning. First of all, just a review from last week. We talked about last week, when do we run? When did Jonah run? The word here, when it says that Jonah fled, it's a a word that carries with it the idea of time. It means that he instantaneously or immediately fled. When Jonah heard the voice of God, he immediately fled. He, no hesitation, no meditation, no prayer, no consideration of consequences. When he heard the voice of God calling him to do something that he did not want to do, calling him to step outside of his comfort zone, calling him to step outside of his box, Jonah, there was no room for Jonah to consider obeying God. There was no consideration, should I obey God or not obey God? When we disobey God, when we rebel and run from God, it's often the immediate reaction that we have to the call of God. Because our first reaction to things is always going to be what? It's always going to be that carnal side of us. It's going to be that fleshly side of us that wants to avoid danger. It's an instantaneous response, and then it was a premeditated response, meaning my belief is the text implies, not just in this chapter, but also in the end, that Jonah had determined beforehand that he would not go to these people. There 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 were certain things that Jonah wouldn't do for God. There were certain things that Jonah would do for God, certain things that Jonah wouldn't do for God, but but Jonah had God in a box. So when do we run? What are some characteristics of when we run? It's that we run instantaneously. We we hear the command of God and we immediately decide. And, And as I mentioned last week, if it's obedience that you're deciding on, then do it instantaneously. But if you're determining whether or not you're going to obey God, meditate on it for a while. Because you need to find out the consequences of disobeying God. You need to think about what God's word says about disobeying him. So when do we run? We run instantaneously. We run self-meditatedly. Where do we run? When we run from God, we run from him. Again, we talked about this last week. Joppa and Tarshish were places that uh, Jonah ran to. Joppa represented and means beautiful, and Tarshish means positive. Tarshish, the name Tarshish means yellow stone or yellow rock, and it was a rock that was produced there or manufactured or, or cut out of the hills, and they would go, people would go there, and it would be a positive stone. It was meant to, it was meant to resist all negativity, right? We all like to go there. We, we don't want any negativity here. So Jonah didn't want any more negativity, so what's he going to do? He's going to go get himself a little stone to, to, uh, to, to ward off the negativity, the negativity, whatever you want to call them, spirits, right? Jonah's problem wasn't that he needed a stone to ward off the negativity spirits. Jonah's problem was he needed to obey God. You ain't going to find a special trinket that's going to cause you to feel good when you're disobeying God. Our world is full of that. We talked last week about everybody in the world wearing crosses around their neck, but they have no understanding of what those crosses mean. Many of them have forsaken the very person of that cross. So what does Jonah do? He runs to a place that's beautiful. He runs to a place that's positive. What's his goal? His goal is to avoid the face of God. And we just mentioned this last week, and I think it's important to re-note is that 
when we run from God, we will often run to places that take our mind off of God. Whether it be alcohol, drugs, sex, pornography, um, uh, success in the world's eyes. They're just, I mean, you could list them all out and you would, you would, you would, that's where, why do people run there? Because they because it takes their minds off of God. It's a, people have, everybody has a comfort zone. Everybody has a fleshly zone. So when they feel certain pressures in their life, when they feel certain stresses in their life, and you guys can vouch for this, because I, I know that you're similar to me. When something, when the intensity starts to ramp up, I have a comfort place that I go to. And you know what about that comfort place? It's always fleshly. It might be food for some of us. You've heard of comfort food, right? What is comfort food? Well, comfort food is when you get stressed out and you need something to comfort you, you go to this food. And then there's comfort everything else. The issue is, is we're running to things and places like Jonah did that will take our mind off of the person of God and the presence of God that makes us sometimes feel guilty, sometimes feel ashamed of ourselves, sometimes bring conviction in our life. We don't want that. We don't want to be exposed and open and naked before God. So we run to things that are fleshly that help us not to deal with those things. We're always running, when we're running, we're always running away from God. Whatever we run to doesn't really matter. It didn't matter that he went to Joppa and Tarshish. I don't think the Lord is worried about Joppa and Tarshish. It matters that he wasn't where he was supposed to be. And then the, the text says, I think two or three times at least in the text, that he ran down, he ran down, he ran down. When we run from God, we're always running down. It's always a downward spiral or a downward slope. Number three from last week, what is the price of running? Running from God always demands a high price. Jonah said that when he went into the ship, he paid the fare. He paid the due that was required of him to run from God. And um, there's always a price to pay. Maybe your family, maybe your children, it may be your marriage, it may be your future. It may be your sanity. It may be your confidence, your hope. I wrote this down because I think it's accurate for our culture today. For some of you men, it may be your masculinity. Some of you have run to things that are so degrading of a man, so shameful for a man that you're no longer a man anymore. You've lost your masculinity. You've lost your ability to lead because you've run to something that is super shameful. Stop running to that which is shameful and get your man card back. There's a price to pay when you run from God. And it's no small price. And these young guys, we got young guys in here and young girls in here, listen to me. You're, you're, you be careful. You run from God, there's a price to pay. The devil has you convinced that you can do whatever you want when you're young and everything's going to be okay when you're old. It's not true. There's older men in here sitting here that struggle with the same things that they struggled with when they were teenagers. Now's the time to win over temptation, not to give into it, young men and young women. You win over it now and your kids won't have to deal with it and your grandkids won't have to deal with it. 
It's a price to pay. The devil will never tell you that. When the devil came to Eve, he told her everything positive about what she was about to do, and he left out everything negative. This morning, I want to focus on five reasons why do we run. Why do we run? Why do we run from God? Five characteristics or things I believe that Jonah was facing in his own, what I would like to call these as strongholds or or reasons, uh, excuses. Everybody has an excuse, right? I mean, if I were to ask you, why are you doing this? You would be able to give me several different, what we would call justifications for why you do what you do. Well, this is this way, and this is this way, and I really can't handle this situation. And you have built up a lot of excuses, right? These excuses in the New Testament, we'll look at this at the end of the messages, they're called strongholds. They're like pillars, right? So if you want to build a foundation, you put pillars underneath it. And those pillars are the main supports for what you're doing, for your foundation. So up here is whatever you want to be doing, and down here is several different pillars that God has given you that make it okay for you to do what you're doing. They're reasons. They're excuses. Again, if I ask you why are you doing what you're doing, you would probably be able to tell me five different things that are reasons or excuses that have become logical to you for why you're doing what you're doing. So why do we run? Why did Jonah run? And why do we run? Number one, and this is an area on your notes that you can actually take and write down words. Number one is because we're callous about our own sin. We're callous towards our own sin. Talked a little bit about this earlier in the message about being being able to point fingers at other people and, and, and by pointing fingers at other people and identifying other people's problems, we become hardened towards the fact that we have sins in our own life. We become hardened to the fact that we have our own problems that God needs to deal with. We have convictions in our own lives. What Jonah was doing is Jonah was looking, Jonah, Jonah's reason for running from going to Nineveh is because Jonah had, Jonah had lost sight of the fact that Jonah was just as sinful as the Ninevites were. Jonah was just as worthy of being condemned as the Ninevites were. Jonah was just as guilty as the Ninevites were, but Jonah had lost sight of, his, of the weight of his own sin. Jonah had lost sight of the extent of his own sin. Jonah had lost sight of the depravity of his own heart, that he was willing to look at somebody else and say, they're not worthy of me going to them because they're worse than I am, but they're not worse than we are. The first justification that we have and the first justification that Jonah has is he became callous towards his own sin. Jonah had forgotten that the last 11 kings that had ruled over Israel, the northern kingdom, over the last 150 years, if you study the kings in the Old Testament, you will find that all of those kings were wicked kings. They did that which was, the Bible says over and over again, they all did that which was evil in the sight of God. They became, he became hardened, or what we would call self-righteous, towards his own sins, which, which gave him a justification or an excuse for not doing what God was calling him to do. 
If you want to turn with me to Matthew 7, it's a familiar passage of Scripture, but, it, but I think it sheds some light on what we're talking about here. Matthew 7, verses 1, the Bible says, Judge not that you be not judged, for with what judgment you pronounce, watch this, for with what judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with what measure you use to judge, it will be measured against you. In other words, how harshly you are on judging other people is the measuring uh, stick that God's going to use against you. Maybe we should do a little bit less judging of other people when we think about the fact that it's going to come back upon us. He says, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye? Notice this. Why do you notice the speck that is in your brother's eye, but you do not see the beam that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye and then you will be see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. My belief about this text is simply this, that what the Lord is saying is, is you'll never help somebody else out when they're struggling unless you realize that you have an equal or greater problem as they do. It's when you recognize when you're going to help somebody with, when you see their struggle as dust and your struggle as a beam, you'll be able to be helpful. Because you'll go to them with mercy, you'll go to them with grace, you'll go to them with kindness, you'll go to them with everything because you see first your own beam. But when all you notice is the stuff that's in their eye, but you see no stuff in your own eye, you have become callous towards yourself and you will no longer be able to obey God. Callous towards our own sins. Here's what Nehemiah says in Nehemiah 1 verse 6. Nehemiah is praying to the Lord. Nehemiah and the Israelite people are in captivity. Nehemiah was very likely not a reason why they were in captivity. It was, it was likely not Nehemiah's sin that caused them to go into captivity. But listen to Nehemiah's prayer. He says, Lord, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which they have sinned against you, even I and my father's house have sinned. What Nehemiah understood is that you, you don't point your finger at other people without pointing your finger at yourself. People often say, when I'm pointing my finger at you, there are, four, there are four pointing back at me, or three, or whatever the number is. The idea of it is, is that we don't want to overemphasize, as Jonah did, the, the, the sinfulness of others and not recognize our own sinfulness, which, which keeps us from serving the Almighty God. He overemphasizes the weight of the Ninevites' sin which made him to believe them to be undeserving of his duty. They're being undeserving of the gospel. Listen to me. Wives don't submit to husbands because their husbands are undeserving. Husbands don't love their wives because their wives are undeserving. Children don't obey their parents because their parents are undeserving. Employees don't work hard for their bosses because their bosses are undeserving. 
people don't serve people because people are undeserving. Is this the biblical way? Does the Bible teach us that we're to do these things and obey his word because the recipient is worthy? No. The Bible teaches we're to do these things because we are children of God. Because graciousness says the recipient is not worthy. Luke 14 verses 13 through 14 says this. When you have a feast, make sure you invite the poor and the crippled and the lame and the blind. And you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. But you will be repaid in the resurrection of the righteous. The first excuse that we have, that we give when we're running from God, is that the people or the situation or the circumstance that God is calling us to minister into isn't worthy of us. Wow, isn't that crazy? How can a person become so self-elevated to look at somebody else and say, you're not worthy of my ministry? But if we're honest, we do it every single day. Number two, fearful of the risk or fearful about the risk. Jonah was likely very fearful in this situation, in this scenario, maybe fearful in a different way that you would think. But I think many initially would say Jonah was probably fearful of the Ninevites, right? So I'm going to turn over to the book of Peter, 1 Peter chapter 3. Fearful. Fearfulness is something that will drive us to running away from God. It will keep us from doing what he asks us to do because perhaps there's some risk involved. Perhaps there's a danger involved. There's a situation where we might face harm or hurt. And so we run away from God. The Bible tells us in 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse number 13, says, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even... But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason of the hope that is within you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile you, your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. And you can read down through the rest of the passage, for Christ also suffered once for sins, and he gives us an, he gives us an example of how we ought to suffer. He says, do not be afraid. Do not be fearful. God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. But if we're honest with, the, with ourselves this morning, God often calls us, calls us to do things that are fearful, Right? God often calls us to do things that are outside of the box. Jonah might have been fearful of the Ninevites, fearful of being rejected by them, fearful of suffering. By going to Nineveh, they could have very easily just captured him and killed him. These were not the type of people that didn't do that on a regular basis. It literally would be like in our modern day being called to a Muslim country, and not just a Muslim country, but perhaps one that is, is a high level of risk. 
and say, go and preach to them that God's going to judge them in 40 days. Hey, God, can you give me a better message than that? That's like saying, please behead me, right? There's a lot of risk involved in what God calls us to do, and there's a lot of fear that goes along with that. But when we know who we serve and we know who is on our side, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. The Bible says in Romans 8, if God is for us, what is it again? Hey, you guys said it. If God is for us, who can be against us? Fearful. Fearful of rejection, fearful of suffering, fearful for his life, fearful of a number of different things. I believe this, though. I believe that Jonah was not afraid for himself, but Jonah was afraid of what the Jews would think of him. Jonah was more afraid of, at the end of Jonah's journey, after all of Nineveh has, has, has converted, they're all, they're all believers now, right? Jonah tells God, I just want to, I just want to die. You know what Jonah didn't want to do? Jonah didn't want to have to go back and face the Jewish people. He didn't want to have to go back and face those looks and that criticism that he just converted an evil people to the Lord. It was not his fear of his enemy. It was his fear of his friends that kept him from obeying God. Jonah would rather have died than go back and face what his friends would think of him for sharing the gospel with this people. We can see this throughout scripture when people are ashamed and therefore or scared of their friends' thoughts and therefore refuse to do what God has called us to do. In Galatians, the apostle Peter refuses to eat with the Gentiles because he's worthy, worried about what the Jews might think of him. And sometimes we're afraid of inviting people to church because we're afraid of what people might think of us. Maybe they're a little bit different. Maybe they're, maybe they're going to disrupt things a little bit. Maybe we need to be disrupted a little bit. Fearful. Number three, Jonah was angry and bitter about the Ninevites. Jonah didn't obviously want anything good for them. He would have been happy to sit there. and I mean, literally, he goes to the other side of Nineveh at the end of the story, and he sits, he makes himself a little tent, right, with some trees and branches, and he wants to watch and he wants to see, is this going to really happen? And then he gets mad at God because God shows them mercy. Jonah didn't want anything good for these people. He hated them that much. In Jonah's mind, the Ninevites deserve, deserve to rot. And he wanted to watch them rot. Listen to me. Anger and bitterness will do that to you. It's not the Ninevites. It's the people who left church three years ago. It's the people who left church ten years ago. It's people who used to be your friends but hurt you at some point in time in your life. When you let yourself get angry and bitter at those people, you will want nothing good for them. You will want to be there when they suffer. Do you know why that is? Because you don't realize that you're just like them and that I'm just like them and that I've done the same thing to, that they did to us, to others. 
We're the same. When we grow angry and bitter at people, we bring destruction. You might be angry this morning at your spouse. You might have bitterness. Listen, marriages, marriages end because one gets bitter at the other. It's true. Relationships with bosses, neighbors, friends, all of these things are hindered when we get, obe- when we get bitter towards people and it hinders our ability to obey God's word. Hebrews 12 and verse 15 says it this way, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. Ephesians 4, 30 to 32 says this, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice and be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another just like God for Christ's sake forgave you. Anger and bitterness will destroy our ability to serve God. I quoted this many months ago and I'm going to quote it again. Penn Gillette He's an atheist um, magician, and here's what he says. He says, how much do you have to hate somebody to believe everlasting life is possible and not tell them about it? He goes on to say, I mean, if I believed beyond the shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming down on you and that you didn't believe that that truck was bearing down on you, there is a certain point that I tackle you. This is an atheist who says if there's a truck coming down the road and you don't see the truck and I see the truck coming and going to hit you, I'm going to knock you out of the way. What's he doing? He's shaming Christians. And he says an eternal life is more important than that. That's how he closes it. This brings us to our to our, our third or fourth point. Jonah was insensitive to the situation. First of all, notice this. Well, let me let me let me I'll get there. He was insensitive, first of all, to the mariners. Jonah had become so hardened and insensitive to their situation that he was asleep in the bottom of the boat while the mariners were up doing all of the work. Jonah was in a deep, unconcerned sleep while those around him were perishing. Listen to me, the first place, wipe away all of the religious part of it, the fact that those guys were gonna die and they were gonna go into eternity, wipe that all away and understand this, the first place a Christian should be in the moment of a situation like that is on the top of the boat helping the situation out not asleep in the basement. When we become so hardened and insensitive, it affects all of our areas of life. We no longer feel compassion for anything. I had a great weekend. I was able to go and watch my daughter. She played in the, in the tournament. The, she's in uh, the, she's in plays college basketball and they had their tournament, and they, they won their tournament, and it was so exciting. But I, I tell you, I told, I told my wife we were there, and we were just celebrating, and I said, you know, I, 
I feel like I feel again. For so many years, I, I was just a passionate, loved things. And like the last several years, it's like I just go and I just sit. And I have no passion. I have no feelings. I have no excitement. It's just like death. And man, I was, you guys would be ashamed of me if you could see what I was like the last few days. I have made sure that they didn't put any videos out. Do you know what, though? We need to feel something. As God's people, we need to feel something. We need to get compassion again about our situation and our circumstances. We need to get compassion about the world around us and the suffering that's going on in the world around us. Man, it is a shame if we're sleeping in the bottom of the boat while the people around us are dying. Even in a literal sense. Even to the point where Jonah is called a sleeper by a sinner. They were in, he was insensitive to the mariners. He was insensitive to the Ninevites. The situation for the Ninevites were, was dire. Forty days and God was going to destroy them. Forty days and he was going to, he was going to judge those people forever. 120,000, the Bible says at the end of the chapter 4, 120,000 children in Nineveh. Likely 600 plus thousand souls there. And do you know what Jonah's attitude is? His attitude is he's ticked off that God would save those people. That's, a, that's, an extent, that's an extent of hatred that I hope I never feel. Jonah didn't care about the Ninevites other than to see them suffer. He was only concerned about his beauty and positivity. The Lord has to wake Jonah up. He says, arise. He has to, right there, he's already in his comfort zone. He tells Jonah to arise and get busy. 1 Corinthians 15, 34 says this, wake up from your drunken stupor and do what is right and do not go on sinning for some have no knowledge of God and I speak this to your shame. In other words, if you look at how a drunk lives life, that's what he's saying that, that's what he's saying that Christians are. You're just floating through life. No worries, no problems, no nothing. Just kind of drunken your way through life. And he says it's shameful. The last thought this morning, and I think an important one, is this. Jonah underestimated the seriousness of God. Jonah underestimated the seriousness of God. Notice this. As a lifelong recipient of God's mercy and grace, Jonah had forgotten that God was just and holy. I imagine when Jonah was standing on the top side of that boat and they were getting ready to cast him into the sea, it came to his mind, God is just. And God is holy. And God will not overlook sin. And God will not allow the guilty to go unpunished. When we refuse to obey God, it is often because we underestimate the fact that he is serious about his commands. I 
Imagine yourself in Jonah's shoes. The storm is raging. The mariners have tried everything. They cast lots and it falls on Jonah. They say, you are the one. And this is the moment where Jonah realizes that God is serious when he says, arise and go. I wonder if we've ever read Matthew 28, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel as the same exact command that Jonah received. And I wonder if many of us even think it's serious. I tell you something, we're, we're a people that have received so much grace that we've lost sight of the holiness of our God. And thank God for the grace. But folks, listen, let us wake up. Let us wake up to the fact that God is holy and just and righteous. God is always serious about his word and he always expects us to be obedient. And he will always bring about obedience, even if it means putting us through storms. In Acts 1 and verse 8, God tells the church in Jerusalem to go to all the world. He says, go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth. You're familiar with that, with that command in Acts, 8, in Acts 1 8. It's interesting that it, it, takes, it takes eight chapters in Acts 8 and verse number 1 that they actually finally obey God in going into all the world. And do you know what brings about their obedience to God? Do you know what concludes Acts 7? Does anybody know what concludes Acts 7? Stephen is stoned. The Bible says in Acts 8, the church was persecuted greatly, and then they went to Samaria to the uttermost parts of the earth. You ever wonder what we're facing today because we won't do what we're supposed to do? What storms are we in right now as a church or as an individual or as a family? What storms are we in right now because we simply won't do what God has called us to do? Romans 1.18, the Bible says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. God is serious, and we must not underestimate him. His grace has a season. His mercy has a season. But as we read in Revelation, it will come to an end. In closing, what is the solution to running if you want to turn with me over to 2 Corinthians chapter number 4, I want to read two verses to you, give you three simple, short thoughts. What is the solution? In 2 Corinthians 4, or 10, verses 4 and 5, the Bible says this. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but are divine in power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and take up every thought captive to obedience to Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience with, when your obedience is complete. Number one, employ divine armor. Employ divine... If you're going to win this morning and if you want to win 
from being afraid of being in the presence of God, you must employ divine armor. Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 20, put on the whole armor of God. Remember this, your weaponry against the attacks of the devil is not your fleshly safe place. It is not. That's how you avoid the problem. It's not how you face it. How do you face your problems and keep from running? You face them by employing divine armory. James tells us this, when a man looks at his face in a mirror and sees who he is and goes away and does nothing about it, the Bible says that he is not blessed, but a man who looks and he stays, he is blessed. Employ divine armory and weaponry. Number two, destroy every opposing excuse and lofty opinion. Destroy every opposing excuse and lofty opinion. And I think it's important that he says lofty opinion because there's many people that are going to be lofty that are going to tell you what you're doing is wrong. Destroy every lofty opinion. And then destroy every excuse that you might have to not do what you're supposed to do. The devil will give us reasons to disobey that must be torn down. And these are like these pillars that I talked about at the beginning of our message. You do not destroy the platform or you do not destroy what you're doing. What you do is you destroy the pillars that are holding it up. You need to destroy the reasons the justifications that you have for not doing what God has called you to do. And then lastly, submit every thought to Christ. Submit every thought to Christ. In other words, the battle begins in your mind. It is a place where the devil will constantly infuse error, and you must guard your mind. You must... You must um, When a thought seeks to come in, you must determine whether that thought is a right thought or a wrong thought, and you must resist it if it's not right. Take every thought captive. It literally is like a soldier standing at a gate, and every person that walks up to that gate is first captured. Wouldn't that be great? It's like, uh, before we're going to give you, it's not the American law here, before we're going to give you any any thought, we're going to capture you first. And then we're going to put you in prison, and we're going to put you through a rigorous process to make sure that you're worthy to get in. That must mean that when you get in, it's pretty important that you get, it's an important thing that's getting in, right? That's what he's talking about here. He says that you guard your mind in that way, that every thought, and listen to me, the world is passing thoughts into our minds through the television, through media, through a thousand different things that are not biblical thoughts. He says that your mind is important enough that you capture that thought, put it into prison, and compare it to Christ. And if it's not worthy of Christ, get rid of it. Philippians 4 and verse 8, think on things that are pure, think on things that are true, think on things that are honest, think on things that are praiseworthy. If there be any, um, I'm I'm, I'm not going to finish it, I I can't remember it all. Capture your thoughts. See if they're worthy of Christ. Not if they're worthy of you, if they're worthy of Christ. And then decide whether you're going to let them in 
or not let them in. And this, and only this, is the way that we can win over running. So my challenge to you this morning in closing is whatever, whatever you're wrestling with, whatever excuses you have for doing what you're doing, whatever excuses you have for not doing what you know you're supposed to be doing, whatever strongholds you have built up to say, hey, it's okay, I just can't deal with it, tear them down. Because in the end, God is serious about what he's doing. And God is serious about you obeying him. God is serious about being God. And he wants you to be serious about being his child. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for this time in your word. We pray your blessing on it. We thank you for Jonah and the, um, his story, his narrative that you uh, had him write for us to learn and know from. But Lord, help us not to just see Jonah, but help us to see me. And help me to be self-evaluating that I might be the person that you want me to be. That I might be obedient to you and not let excuses or arguments or lofty opinions of this world creep in and lead me away from just simply doing what I'm supposed to do. We love you, Lord, and are thankful to be a part of your family. We pray your blessing upon our day in Jesus' name. Amen.